Hi, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, here to let you know about a new and innovative theater major, the BA in Theater and Business Arts at the University of Providence. Get the education and experience you need as a theater artist and the business acumen to succeed in your career. Visit broadwaybullet.com and stay tuned to the end of the program for more info. Now, enjoy the show. Ooh, is that pod on? Welcome to Volume 17 of Next Big Hit, Broadway Bullet. I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and we've got a lot of fantastic stuff for you this episode. We're going to be talking to Steven Spinella about his career and his new musical, Spring Awakening. We're going to be hearing songs from Sherry Renee Scott, as well as the Dirty Rotten Scoundrels soundtrack, and another song from the holiday musical, Striking 12. We're also going to be talking actress Vanessa Aspiaga, who is in the Pulitzer finalist play, The Clean House, now playing at the Lincoln Center Theater. And we're going to be talking with four of the ensemble members from Spring Awakening who are all making their Broadway debuts. This week, through the season end in episode 21, Broadway Bullet is going geeky on Spring Awakening. Over these five episodes, we're doing six interviews with various people in the cast and on the creative team. We're doing this in conjunction with BroadwayWorld.com, who is also printing transcripts of the interviews, and we have a great contest with this. At the end of the season, we're giving away 10 pairs of tickets to Spring Awakening, and that's not all. You're going to get a meet and greet with the cast and creatives after the show, so it's very exciting. But in order to win it, you're going to have to do a little bit of work. You're going to have to go geeky with us. In each of the interviews, I'm asking two geeky questions. They're going to be clearly marked. One of them, the answer is going to be in this podcast. And the other one, the answer will only be in the transcripts on broadwayworld.com. At the end of the show, you just give us the answers to all 12 questions, and the first 10 people to get them all right will win this fantastic prize. It's easy to do a search on broadwayworld.com to find the articles, but to make it easy for some of you, we'll put the links up in a forum thread at broadwaybullet.com so that you can find the articles more easy to get the answers, but you're going to have to dig. So let's jump into the program with part one of our six-part Going Geeky on Spring Awakening as we talk with Steven Spinella. Steven Spinella is one of the most esteemed actors we have on the New York stage, while he also has a healthy career in film and television as well. He is currently one of the leading characters in the new musical Spring Awakening on Broadway, and he stopped by the studio to talk to us about his career and Spring Awakening. How are you doing, Steven? I'm very good. Well, first off, I guess we'll start with not the very beginning, but the water point of the career. You really came to prominence in the theater scene with a one-two punch of Angels in America, Volumes 1 and 2. Volumes. <laughs> yeah, I think volumes is probably appropriate, yeah. That was back in 92, 93, or 93, actually, I guess it was. You were involved in that process even before it hit Broadway, weren't you? Oh, yeah. Tony, Tony Kushner and I met when we were in graduate school at NYU, and we had a, an extended argument one afternoon in the student lounge about, you know, the relative merits of the Village Voices versus the New York Review of Books. And we sort of became friends, and he started directing stuff. He was in the directing program, and I was in the acting program. And he put me in a couple of projects, and that summer he wrote a play called The Age of Assassins, which I don't think has ever been published and asked me if I would do it. 
and I played um, Luigi Lucchini, who was the man who assassinated the Empress of Austria. It was a, if I remember right, it was a four-hour evening in a very small theater on 18th Street. And the cast had about, I, I don't know, about 20 different actors in it. It was a huge, huge <laughs> production. Even Angels in America was a rather huge production for a straight play on. Well, yeah, that, that was eight actors, but that was seven hours. So I guess, you know, <laughs> oh, I guess, yeah. he, he went for length and, and but there were, we doubled up and we played a lot of characters. So he's a, he's a loquacious man. How long was the process between when Angels in America started to come into development to when it hit Broadway? Well, we were doing another play called Bright Room Called Day, and that was about 85. And he said he had an idea. We were talking one afternoon. He said he had an idea to write a gay play, and it would just be gay men. And his preliminary idea was that it would include Roy Cohn, at least one Mormon character, and it would deal with AIDS. Then the Eureka Theater in San Francisco picked up a bright room called Day. They actually came to see the production that we did in this very tiny theater on 22nd Street. Uh, <laughs> they decided to do the play at the Eureka, and while, it, while he was doing it there with Oscar Eustace, Oscar Eustace was then the artistic director of the Eureka Theater, who is now running the public theater, Oscar asked Tony you know, if he had a gay play because it was San Francisco. And Tony said, well, I'm thinking about this play that would include, you know, Roy Cohn, a Mormon character, and deal with AIDS. And he said, well, if you can write it for the company, I'll commission it. And the company, the Eureka Theater Company, had three women in it and one man. So the play that originally was supposed to be all men now had to include three women. So he created The Angel... Harper and Hannah, and by bringing those characters in, the thing sort of grew exponentially, and that's how it turned into a two-evening play. Were you shocked to win your second Tony as well for the same play? I was shocked well, I to win both. I, I was absolutely, completely convinced that Joe Mantello was going to win the first one. I, I just thought that there was no way I could possibly compete with the tour de force that he did in democracy in America. He has an eight-page monologue in the beginning of the third act of that play. And I didn't think there was anything I could possibly do ever to compete with that. He was just so amazing in that. And I, I thought, you know, it was such a scene-stealer role that there was no way I could eclipse him on that. And, and we had this deal. He was sitting right behind me at the Tonys, and we had this deal that if he wins, I would stand up and he would give me a hug and a kiss before he ran on stage. And if I won, he would stand up and I would give him a hug and a kiss. And he was sitting behind me and he had this panic. He told me afterwards, he said, you know, I suddenly had this panic as I was sitting there that if you forgot to do that and I jumped up ready for you to give me a hug as you ran on stage, the entire audience, the entire television audience would look at that and think, oh, that poor boy, he thought he was going to win and now he's stood up and... <laughs> But I did remember, and so it had a happy ending. That wasn't just a winning roller show. It was a real watershed show on Broadway that garnered tons of national attention. How important do you think that has been in terms of launching your career? And you've been continuously working since then in a lot of high-profile projects. And oh, that was it. 
that was it. I mean, that, that made my career. I didn't have a career before that. I mean, I was doing... I hadn't done anything really significant. I don't think I had more than two paying jobs in New York City before I came in with that, over like a 10-year period. You know, I had done some regional stuff and, and a couple of interesting, but it was all regional, a couple of interesting projects. And that changed everything. That absolutely changed everything. What have been some of your favorite projects oh, since Angels in America? The Dead, which I, I, I think next to Angels, I think actually now with Spring Awakening, Spring Awakening is, I have three things in my life that I really, really treasure, and that's Angels and The Dead and Spring Awakening. I mean, Spring Awakening, I think, is one of the best things I've ever done. It's, a, it's one of the best projects I've ever been a part of. I just think it's powerfully important and an incredibly beautiful musical. But other stuff that I really, really have enjoyed is I, I did a wonderful production of Travesties at Williamstown three or four years ago. An impossibly difficult Tom Stoppard play. And just had a spectacularly good time with that. And only got 15 performances out of it, but it's such a spectacularly good time. And I had a scene with Michael Stuhlbarg in it. I played James Joyce. Uh, Michael played Tristan Zara. When Stoppard wrote the play, he wrote this extended scene at the end of the first act, which mirrors the scene in the chapter in Ulysses, the catechism where there's a question and response, question and response. And he mirrors that in Travesties with me asking Tristan Zara about Dada in these incredibly complicated sentences, I, these incredibly complicated questions to which Zara answers with these incredibly ornate, almost Dada-ish answers. And it goes on for like seven pages. And it's usually cut. And in fact, Stoppard, I believe, I believe Stoppard wrote a cut version of it. And Gregory Boyd, who directed it, asked, you know, if we would be interested in reinstating the original scene. And so Stuhlbarg and I, being the absolute hams that we are, we jumped at the chance. And we had rented a house Actually, he rented the house, and I hated the place I was staying, so he let me stay in one of the spare rooms. And so, you know, we would, over breakfast every morning, we would sit there and we would run this, like, 12-minute scene. And walking to the theater, we would run this 12-minute scene, and it turned into one of the most pleasurable experiences I've ever had on a stage, is just working with Stuhlbarg on that scene and, and doing that scene for 15 performances. It was just... It was sublime. It was absolutely sublime. Incredibly difficult scene, but what a pleasure it was to play in the end. Now, as I mentioned, as an actor, you've done numerous things in stage, television, and film. And I'm kind of curious, from an actor's standpoint, what do you feel are the biggest differences, technique-wise, that you have to change up for each medium? Well, you do everything internally the same. You live internally the same way. Your external life... I had a wonderful teacher once who talked to me about... She talked to me about... I was doing a scene from The Importance of Being Earnest, and she said something that has sort of translated into a lot of different things. She said, remember that these people, they don't have any television and they don't listen to the stereo and they don't have the things that make our world smaller, that fill our rooms with music and sound. And the only thing that fills their rooms with music and sound is is either them actually making the music or them speaking. And so the voice and the words that you say 
are the things that fill the room. They're the things that make the energy in the room. And it was kind of an epiphany in a way because you live larger in the theater. In television, you you really need to just take up the space between you and the camera. But on the stage, you have to take up the entire space, and yet you still have to have a real human internal life. So that, for me, is the biggest difference in terms of performance. In building something, you don't get that kind of rehearsal in film and television. So you build it differently. You, you build it very, very much in film and television, especially in television, on yourself. And it's very rare that you have the opportunity to create something that is significantly other than yourself. They'll just, you know, there are so many actors, they'll just find the actor that is that. I, I just got to do a, a really great thing on Nip Tuck, where I played someone who is incredibly tight and constrained and, you know, uh, you know just, <laughs> just really, really kind of, just kind of a crazy scientist guy who shows all virtually no emotion but is incredibly emotional. And, and, and it was a great scene because I got to do it with Rosie O'Donnell. And she, she was Rosie. She was like this powerhouse. And I played this incredibly tight, anal scientist. And that was, that was a real sort of departure because I, you know, normally they would get an actor who does that all the time. You know, and so they gave it to me. I got the opportunity to do it. And it was really fun and really unusual to play that kind of role because usually you play some kind of extension of yourself because you, you have so little time, you have to build it on yourself. Whereas in the theater, like one of the characters I play in Spring Awakening, because I play, I think, nine characters in this, one of the larger characters I play is a pinched, really mean, incredibly ancient, monstrous man, <laughs> a teacher, a headmaster of a school. I had to find what that guy was. I mean, that's something that I would never play in film or television. They would just get that guy. <laughs> and there's was a long process of finding out how comedic he was. And, and I do the scene with Christine Estabrook. And and we had to figure out together, you know, how it would work best. And so in the theater, you get this long process of building almost from just the words, the character. And, and so in that way, it's very, very different. So I guess this is a good time to start talking about Spring Awakening. I find it interesting that it's such a, a straight actor, so to speak, that now you're drawn to your second musical on Broadway. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't sing um, much, and I, I don't dance much at all. You know, I, I, I lucked out in The Dead because they found a, a wonderful role, uh, Freddie Malins, who is a drunk, and, and you know, and so I got to sing the drunk song, and I was actually taking a lot of really wonderful vocal lessons for like a few years I had been studying because I had had such an abominable audition for the MC and Cabaret. I was so horrified by it, and I just thought, I'm never going to go through it. I literally apologized throughout the end. Oh, I'm so, I'm so sorry. That sounds so bad. Can I try that again? And I literally <laughs> apologized through the entire audition. And then, of course, I didn't get the part. And I swore that I would never do that again. Because I, I love musicals, and I wanted to do something like that. I started taking singing lessons, and then The Dead came along and and didn't require that I have a great voice, and I sang the drunks 
song and just I had a just an excellent time and that was such a incredibly beautiful piece of theater and then in this the adult I play all of the adult men and Christian Estabrook plays all the adult women we don't have any songs we sing in a few songs so there's not a lot of vocal requirement in that sense but in this I'm I'm legitimately the the supporting actor in this you know I create the scene I create the conflict you know my job is to put those kids under enough pressure in the stories that I'm involved with them put the screws to them in such a way it justifies what they do so in that sense I'm I'm the supporting actor I always call it the engine of the play if you have a character like um like Karen Ziemba's character in Contact a few years back. Her husband, I would say that he was the engine and that he generated within her the energy for her to do what she had to do so that he's the thing that drives her to do what she has to do. And I function in a lot of ways as the engine in this, so I have to get the scene to a certain place so that the kids have to do what they have to do. Now, I don't think it's unusual anymore for actors to play multiple roles in a lot of theater things, but what struck me as a bit different about this is the range of characters and the tone. A lot of times there's a little bit comedic angle playing so many characters, but for instance, there's one particular scene where you have to switch in a dime, where you go from a very emotional silent scene, you actually don't have any lines in it, but you just kind of break down over the loss of your son, and then... Two seconds later, you're switching over to a character. The headmaster, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, you know, actually, it's, uh, it was something that really scared me at first. But it, it you know, I, actors, we, what we're doing up there is, even though the, the affect, the emotional life is coursing through us, it's coursing through us on the energy of our imaginations. And I'm not really grieving at the grave of my son, but I am really grieving at the grave of my son. I mean, I, I imagine that I'm there, and when I turn that off, everything stops, you know. I'm not an emotional recall actor. I, I don't go out there and remember my father's funeral or that sort of thing. I, I go out there and grieve at the grave of my son. And so when I turn that off, even though my body is still very much recovering from that grief, the grief is done. And what's great about it then is that I get to go into Kanakenbrook, the mean, nasty headmaster, and kick the crap out of uh, <laughs> poor Melchior Gabor. And uh, because he's so fierce and monstrous in that scene, I have all of this facility because, you know, everything has been incredibly alive in the previous scene, grieving at the grave of my son. <laughs> So while it is immensely difficult to build, it, it has been, and it is still an ongoing process. I mean, just yesterday, Michael and I ha have been in, still working on exactly how he leaves and, and other details in the scene to be very, very specific about what happens in the story where I have no lines and I grieve at my son's gravesite. Building it has been incredibly hard. but. Playing it, maybe you should ask me in you know three or four months or <laughs> you know six months how hard it is to play it. But playing it at this point, it, it's really a leap of imagination. And depending on how well I can do that, decides how well I can do the scene at the grave. 
And then going into the next scene is just a matter of letting go of what I'm imagining and moving on to the new scene I have to imagine, the new event. How long was the process between the, the producers courting you and you decided you wanted to take the show? Is this something you jumped at immediately, or is this something that took a little coaxing? Or, Well, Michael and I also went to NYU together. He was in the acting program. He was a year after me in the acting program, so I've known Michael for 25 years. So I knew about this project. I didn't see it this summer. When they called me in with the offer, I you know, said, oh, my God, I'm very excited. Send me the script. My agents made it sound like we're really the only thing we're concerned about is that maybe it's not going to be enough for you to do. Yeah, on paper, I could see that it doesn't look like an inspiring role, though. You, you imbibe all the characters so much life, and you really do give a fantastic performance. But I can imagine on paper it's not. Well, you know, I, I got to say, I, I didn't really know what they were talking about because I got that script, and I was like, well, it looks like he's all the way through. <laughs> I, I don't know what you mean by there's not going to be enough for me to do. I, I, it seems like there's an awful lot for me to do. And during the rehearsal process, they added things and they changed things and then they added more things. And they brought in a whole character and then that whole character went away again. I mean, it was like it, there was a, there's been a lot for me to do. And also the challenge of doing doing nine different characters, many of which are in very, very similar situations. I mean, a lot of the fathers are in very similar situations. And Michael's job is to tell the story of the play, and my job is to tell the story of each of the individual characters. So he'll give me the same note about, you know, three different fathers. And I've got to find a way to make that same note. You've got to be harder on them. You've got to push them further. You've got to, you know, I've got to find a way to make those three notes very different for each character. And so three different fathers don't come off looking exactly the same. And that has been arduous. You know, it has been a challenge, and it's an ongoing challenge. And there are characters that you... What is the way to say this without diminishing the other characters? There, there are characters that you you look forward to. Mm -hmm. And like Moritz's father, whose name is Renter. His name is Renter Stiefel. <laughs> and so Renter, for me, is a... He, he's a much... Even though I only... I actually have more to say as Melchior's father. But because of what happens to Moritz's father, it's a character that I have sort of fallen in love with more. It's a, it's a more dangerous character for me because he walks a very terrifying line. And I, I'm drawn to those characters more, and I sort of fall in love with those characters more and look forward to them more. The nasty headmaster, we just have these two little blips in the first act, and then in the third act where we crucify the poor boy. Again, you know, my favorite one is the third act one. <laughs> <laughs> Which leads to a very funny uh, side heading into a song. Oh, say. yeah, yeah, no, no. And you want to know something? The punchline of the first line of that song is always at the back of my head. I have to build that scene, and that's, again, what I mean about being the engine of the scene. Well, we can I, say the line. It's internet radio, so the song is... Oh, oh no, no, I don't want to, I don't want to give it away. Let's, 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 let them <laughs> it's see. in the playbill. Okay. Let, let them see. <laughs> It is in the playbill? Yeah, the song title. Oh, yeah. We don't have to give it away. No, no. No, let's not give it away. Okay. It's such a great moment when they, when that song comes up. And it's just, you know, but that's, again, what I mean about being the engine is I know what the 
first line of that song, which is also the title of the song, is. And, and I have to set up the situation so completely so that when he says that, everybody in the audience laughs with recognition because they all know, oh, I know what that is like. I know what it's like to be there. So that's another reason I really enjoy that scene. I have a, I have a place to go. So as we start wrapping up here, one of the things I'm sure that a lot of listeners might be interested in is what would be kind of a couple of your biggest tips for up-and-coming actors trying to pursue a career here on stage? I would say go to a really, really good school. And I would say get your favorite people to work with, you know, who have the best ideas about the theater and do stuff make things happen, put up stuff, put up vanity projects, put up, you know, whatever you can. I mean, Kushner had a group of people around him for years, and he would write plays and we would do them, and we did it again and again and again. And, you know, finally one of them got noticed and things started to happen. And then you just got to try to be as as good and as professional. And, you know, it's hard to say this because there's so many creeps and assholes out there, but you sort of got to be as easygoing as you can. You got to recognize the creeps and the assholes and try to avoid them. But when you're working with really good people, appreciate that and have a certain amount of humility and always recognize that there is someone who knows more than you and that there's someone that you can learn something from. But really, mostly, I would say gather together your favorite peers and you know, make things happen for yourselves. And as we wrap up, I've got we got a contest going on to win some tickets here to Spring Awakening. And so uh, since the series is called Going Geeky on Spring Awakening, we're going to say this is geeky question number one. And uh, that was, what was your very first play in the role you were? <laughs> uh, when I was in the first grade, I played the eponymous character in The Gingerbread Man. Which means that I played the gingerbread man. The eponymous character is the character in the title. So if you play Hamlet, you're playing the eponymous character. And for our second geeky question, you mentioned that you were in The Age of Assassins by Tony Kushner, which was never produced elsewhere. What was your role in that show? Find the answer on broadwayworld.com. Well, I know you have to head back to rehearsals for Spring Awakening, but I thank you very much for coming and taking the time to share so much information about yourself with our audience. Thank you very much. Actress and singer Sherry Renee Scott originated the lead female role in Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, but she also has a recording career. We're going to play a song from her CD, Men I've Had. This is called Squeeze Box. Mama's got a squeeze box she wears on her chest. When daddy comes home, he never gets no rest because she's playing all night.
Pick up Sherry Renee Scott's CD, Men I've Had, at shikaboom.com. That's S-H-K-B-O-O-M.com. Or it's also available at iTunes. Hi, I'm sitting here talking with Vanessa Aspiaga. Yes. Who is one of the outstanding ensemble members of the Pulitzer finalist, The Clean House, which is currently playing at the Lincoln Center. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm loving it in here. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you have a unique challenge with this play as the show opens to you doing a very extended joke yes. in Portuguese. That's right. For an audience that I'm willing to bet doesn't understand much Portuguese. No, they don't. <laughs> but you know what's so fabulous about it? What was so amazing is, of course, you know, you never have the audience, you know, you have people sit around in rehearsal, etc., and they hear everything a million and one times. You never know how it's going to play out. Well, the first time that we did it, we had the first preview we had, I thought, oh, well, you know, I didn't even know how it was going to go over. And these people were laughing, and I was like, oh, my God, they're laughing at this joke, and, and they don't even know what, you know, what I'm saying. But it's funny because it, it's a very sexual joke. I think you got that. Did you get that from the... We got that as sexual, yes. (laughs) Your physicality during the joke definitely was... Gave it away. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, it's it's a lot of fun because uh, one of the things that Sarah had mentioned was that she was very intrigued. People have asked her, why did you put that in the show? And she said she was very intrigued by seeing plays in foreign languages and you know, just how much of it you get. And when she was writing this play, she had that the character was from Brazil, and and I think she just, just decided to open it up with this very bold, you know, this joke in Portuguese. And I think it is so much fun to do. And I'll tell you, our student matinees, when we do it for the students, <laughs> they get such a huge kick out of it. I, and And it's great because it translates even though people don't understand what's actually being said 
but it does translate, and it, it's a lot of fun. But I, I thought it was going to be crickets out there, but they actually, people really laughed and enjoyed it. Now, you're working with quite a powerhouse there. I mean, not That's only right. is the, you know, the play, you know, you know, Pulitzer was a Pulitzer finalist, but you've got a powerhouse ensemble cast around you as well. It's an amazing cast. Jill Clayburgh, Blair Brown, Concetta Tomei, John Dossett. The amazing thing is that there are these actresses that I've admired for such a long time. And the funny thing with Blair, if you ever get her into the studio, you can ask her about how I kind of stalked her a little bit. You know, <laughs> I, she was, I used to, you know, I used to watch that Days and Nights of Molly Dodd. And I remember when I was doing the theater, you know, auditioning and going in for voiceovers and stuff. And I was like, that's Blair Brown. And then, you know, I went over to her house. She had a, a soiree for a fundraiser for a theater company. And I got to chat with her. And she was so lovely. And I was such a ad- great admirer of her work. And then I got this play, and I was like, oh, my God. I'm going to be on stage with Blair Brown and Jill Clayburgh. <laughs> and Jill, who I'd watched in movies, and she's worked with the most amazing actors and directors And it's brilliant. I mean, it it is beyond my wildest dreams. And Lincoln Center, working at Lincoln Center, because that was a huge dream of mine as well, have such vivid memories of the first time I ever went to Lincoln Center and auditioned for a play. And I was a teenager. And I remember going down the stairs and the smells of the hall and those posters with James McMullen's amazing artwork. And I was so nervous, and it was so exciting. And I cannot tell you that when we started rehearsals, I felt the same excitement. And every time I'm there, I honestly do. I t- and this is what I tell everybody. What Lincoln Center sounds like to an actor, it's like working at Lincoln Center. It sounds very it's very huge and elevated. And that's what it feels like. Like, once you're working there, it never becomes... Like, oh, whatever, I'm working at Lincoln Center. You know, it's, I don't know what it is, but there's something so special in the air there. And it's also the way that Andre Bishop and uh, uh, Bernie Gersten, like, treat all of us so well. So I'm super happy to be working there and amazed that I get to do this funny, raunchy, bittersweet play with these amazing actors it's like I couldn't have asked for anything more. <laughs> it's like I feel like someone's going to pinch me and be like, what? Oh, yeah, that well, was a nice dream. <laughs> I think one really interesting thing about the play and this production of it is a lot of the dichotomies that are at work. The The play itself shifts from a very realistic style to a surrealistic style, you know, in an instant back and forth. Yeah, and not only that, those switches, but it's also these emotional switches that happen that people have asked me about afterwards like audience will come up and say it really surprised me because it's funny I'm laughing and then all of a sudden I was crying and I've had various people say that to me that's the brilliance of Sarah Rule and uh, the brilliance of of her writing and and this particular play because it is just seamless the way that it takes you on this journey and you almost don't even realize where it's going to take you emotionally complicated and layered. It's beautiful. I love it. To me, it went beyond just the differences in the characters, which are great, but it almost is like everybody has their own acting style and somehow it all gelled into a complete 
I piece mean, of its own. Yeah, because the interesting thing, I think one of the amazing things about this play is also, and one of the things that became so crystal clear when we had our student matinees, because I, I thought, you know, are these kids going to relate to this play, right? Like what you're saying, Lane's character is this wealthy, upper-class, doctor, professional woman. And I'm from Brazil, you know? I'm from this, you know, small town in Brazil and an aspiring comedian and her housekeeper. And And a great housekeeper. (laughs) I'm not too good, but don't tell people that. But um, the thing about it is, is that there's something so beyond all those facades that these characters have, because you're right. They are very different. You've described all of these characters. Be like, how would they interact? But the amazing thing about this play that brings forth our universality as people and how you find family in the strangest configurations and how you find forgiveness, acceptance, and family and how you sometimes create families you don't even realize that that's what's happening because each of these characters is I think in the beginning quite broken and lonely in a certain way whether or not they would cop to it right but by the end it's this amazing transformation that happens and yes I I do I think those different um, energies that you experienced when you watch the show is the brilliance, is part of the brilliance of this play because they are these very disparate people that are together in this place. And you're like, how is this even going to work? And it's just brilliant. It's amazing. And it's moving. And it, I mean, you got kids from East Flatbush who've come to see the play during a student matinee and are, I'm telling you, absolutely on pins and needles, like, attentive. And I've done student matinees in the past of other shows. Kids were talking and not paying attention. All these kids are paying attention. And these are, you know, characters who, except for mine, they're older. You mm-hmm. know, you think they're in a certain socioeconomic place. and how. Are, but you, that's the amazing thing of her writing is that they're very human. And you can relate to each and every one of them. That's that's what's so brilliant about the play. Now, you're no stranger to uh, prestigious work, either. You were in Anna and the Tropics, the Pulitzer Prize winner on Broadway. Yes, another wonderful, amazing play. And I just actually got a message from Jimmy Smits. He said, I'm going to try to come see the show. He's like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to be in town. He's in L.A. And that was another wonderful experience. It was another situation. I've been very fortunate because I've worked with amazing actors, but not only amazing actors, where they become like family. And uh, that's what I feel in The Clean House. And that's definitely what I felt in Anna and the Tropics. You know, I had this Priscilla Lopez, Jimmy Smith, <laughs> Daphne Rubin Vega, John Ortiz, David Zayas, you know, these amazing actors. Victor Argo, may he rest in peace, another amazing actor. We had a great time. We had a ball. We really did. You also are a bit of a playwright as well. I am. Just you, a bit. 
<laughs> do you do you feel the pressure? You know, when you act in such esteemed material to, I, that your shows have to live up. You know what's so interesting, and I actually haven't told anybody this, but I had this moment when I was working on the clean house where I felt like. And this, I'm absolutely not saying this because I'm in the play. I literally felt that this play was like a gift to the audience. And I said, and not, you work on great plays, you do things that you really love, but this play felt very special and like this fragile gift. And that's the best way that I can describe it. And I said, God, I want to do that. Because the play that I wrote, Hush, was very different from The Clean House. Mm-hmm. Very kind of dark. And it's, uh, people likened it a lot to Sam Shepard. And I, I don't know. And they were quite surprised that a Latina had written this play that took place in the rural South and was very rough. It was funny, I felt as well. But it was definitely a rough, sexually charged kind of violent play. And I love that work as well. I loved the world was a little scary at times when I was in there. But I felt incredibly inspired in this process with The Clean House. There were other worlds that I wanted to explore. And I felt that something got opened up to me. That's my goal when I, when I do a play that you reach people at that level where they feel like they had an experience. And I am so thrilled to keep on writing and work towards those kinds of experiences in the theater through my own writing as well. So I guess to answer your question, I, I feel inspired. Not daunted, inspired. <laughs> yeah. We should also talk briefly about um, yes. you're one of the founding members of the Labyrinth. Labyrinth started out, uh, was called Latino Actors Base in its inception, and it has grown to include actors from all different ethnicities. And it's such an amazing group of talented people who essentially came up together. There are writers that have been born of Labyrinth, like Stephen Adley Girgis. He was an actor in the group and started writing for Lab. The rest is history. I mean, he's, you know, (laughs) it's like, you know, he's written some amazing plays uh, now that have been done all over the world. This place has fostered so many amazingly talented people. I was very lucky to be a part of the beginning. It, It provides a home for actors to work on anything that they want to work on. You know, we have open projects where people just bring in whatever wild idea they have. We go on their, the intensives, uh, which is like we go to, uh, in the summer, go away out of the city, write, do workshops, play, do a lot of readings. It's a wonderful, wonderful uh, place for actors, and I'm also very fortunate to be to have that as a home. And, you know, I've d- I had done readings of my play Hush there as well. I ultimately had a workshop of Hush at Intar, which is another wonderful place that has meant so much to all of us in the Latino community, uh, artists, um, has always been a home for writers and actors. And Eduardo Machado, who's the artistic director there now, is 
is really doing an amazing job of bringing in fresh, exciting theater back to that this amazing place that's been around for so long. And Phil Hoffman and John Ortiz have done an amazing job at Lab, and who knew? And also the Clean House has been extended to January 28th, is that right? That's right. We're stopping on December 17th for a brief holiday break, and then we're starting right back up on January 2nd through January 28th. And tickets are available because we were sold out which is an amazing feeling to have. We're almost sold out for this other leg, but we definitely have some tickets available. So you should, should go online and check it out, lct.org. So. And, and everybody can find out if your character does indeed find the perfect joke. That's right. <laughs> well, Vanessa, thanks so much for coming down and talking with us. Oh, Michael, it's been a pleasure. Best Thank of luck with the rest of your run. Thank you. We interviewed Brendan Milburn and Valerie Vagoda of the group Groove Lily about their new musical, Striking 12, in episode 14. We're going to play another song from that musical now. This one is called Can't Go Home. Can't go home. Can't stay here. Street of a stone. Of tears, blue with cold, or black and blue, nothing or sold, and I know you. You stare at the holes in the ceiling, your anger grows with every drink.
Viking 12 will be playing through December 31st, and there are still tickets available. And be sure to check out their interview in Volume 14. In his 25 years working in the heart of Broadway at the Colony, Marty Cooper's met and seen just about everybody and everything, and he likes most all of it, which is why every week he brings us a segment we call On the Positive Side. Hey, this is Marty Cooper once again on the positive side, uh, the uh, self-proclaimed man in the chair. I have a little open letter for Ben Brantley, who uh, possibly, to my knowledge, was one of the only negative reviews on uh, the show Mary Poppins. I reviewed this show, the London production, a few weeks ago. Went opening night to the Broadway production, and I was thrilled. Mr. Brantley, I wonder if he has, if he had a normal childhood, because this show is asking you to fantasize, imagine things. It's not black and white. Ms. Poppins, I shall call her, doesn't perform magic tricks. She just opens the children's minds. They're not really taking strawberry syrup or lime syrup. They're taking medication. But they think they're taking strawberry and lime syrup. They're not really going to a picnic with statues. It's a gray, dismal, rainy day. They think they're going on a picnic with Mary, Bert, and statues. I don't know if everybody gets that. So I hope I have been helpful to a lot of people in their enjoyment of the show. I think it's wonderful. I don't think Ashley Brown looks like Joan Crawford, as she was accused. Gavin Lee, yes, the other Gavin. Our Gavin is now in London, Gavin Creel. Gavin Lee is here. He is truly a great showman, song and dance man. He's exciting to watch. He is basically the center of the whole show. Every place you go, you go with him. The step in time number is even better than it was in London. I think the proscenium at the Amsterdam is taller, so it's even harder dancing around up to the top and around upside down and down the other side. When Fred Astaire did it, he needed camera tricks. Here there are no camera tricks. He's really dancing on the ceiling. It's altogether a wonderful show and a big show. When you see it, you realize the just how huge this production is. You see every dollar they spent on it and every dollar you spent on it. Please go. Uh, I think it might be hard right now to get a ticket. Hopefully it'll stay around for many years. I think Mary Poppins is the most Disney show of all of them. My analogy is, my wife and I go to Disney World a lot. We enjoy being there. It takes us away from the hustle and bustle of New York. Takes the mind and the spirit away. I took what they call a Keys to the Kingdom tour, where they show you the ins and outs of Disney World. They show you, they take you underground. They show you why certain things happen. It's a fun tour. Next time you're there, you should take it. But one thing I remember, when you walk down Main Street, which is the street leading towards Cinderella's Castle, there are a bunch of like little bake shops. There are souvenir shops in there. When you walk past the bake shops, you smell those cookies baking. The guy told us that we make sure these are cooking about an hour and a half before you get into the park. So you're drawn into it. You're drawn into the shops. And you buy some cookies and stuff like that. You can't help but do it. You know, the smell is wonderful. What I feel while I'm watching Mary Poppins I smell those cookies. It's a true Disney show, even though 
it's darker than some. Maybe not darker than, uh, for instance, Lion King, which has a lot of dark scenes. You know, people keep accusing Mary Poppins of having this really scary scene. They say it's scary for kids. You know, it's a song called Temper Temper. Yes, it is scary, but unless you're really little and very unhip, it shouldn't affect you that much. It has its dark moments. It speaks of a uh, dysfunctional family, a difficult father. But everybody is won over in the end, and it's wonderful to watch. And uh, once again, I say, go see it. Once again, this is Marty Cooper, the man in the chair, on the positive side. On the Positive Side is brought to you by The Colony in the heart of Manhattan at 49th and Broadway or online at colonymusic.com. You can always say, I found it at The Colony. It's a pretty good bet for picking up all the different musical selections we play in this show as well. I'm sitting here with four of the cast members from Spring Awakening who are all making their Broadway debut with this production. Right. How are you guys doing? Good. Good. Everybody want to take a second to introduce themselves and what role you're playing? I'm Lauren Pritchard and I play Ilsa. I'm Skylar Austin and I play Georg Zierchnitz. I'm Phoebe Stroll. I play Anna. I'm Brian Johnson and I play Otto Lammermeyer. All of you were involved in the off-Broadway production of The Atlantic, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. What was it? What was it like there, getting ready? Hot and oh. cramped. <laughs> yeah, the air conditioning was broken like it was every other summer. <laughs> so yeah, it was, it was a so hot we, summer. And yeah. it was an old church, and it still belonged to the. There was like that church, and then the church next door, and the church next door owned the church and wouldn't let them do any repairs <laughs> on the roof yeah. or any insulating or touch it, so that they could make it like weatherproof for the summer mm -hmm. and so the sun was beating down and the lights would go out through the show and, and it, it rained and when it rained it would be raining with us inside the performance inside yeah. the, it was just like but it was great, great it was great yeah, it was awesome it jazzed it up i mean hey we were sweating like crazy but yeah. we were feeling you did not it you know? just say jazzy. and it was a, what i didn't say jazzy you know whatever the intimacy of the space was the best part yeah because it was just we were all in a giant room and yeah there was just nowhere to escape mm -hmm, really no. doing the performance. I remember the yeah. first day that we walked into the theater and over the time of the rehearsals, Michael kept saying, there's nowhere to hide, there's nowhere to hide, mm -hmm. there's nowhere to hide. And we got there and I was like, oh my God, there's really nowhere to <laughs> yeah. hide. There's literally <laughs> nowhere to hide. Not there's to mention no with, the, with the audience on really stage. Yeah. Yeah. There's literally... You no can't even yeah. do anything. Like, you can't hide anything. Yeah, yeah now, for our listeners who haven't seen the show yet, yeah, you do have the audience sitting in like a yes. Stuart wooden chairs yes. on the side of the yes. stage, yes. and you actually sit in yeah. with them mm -hmm. yeah. while you're not acting. Has any audience member said anything inappropriate to you oh, during yes. the show? Yes. Oh, yeah. Actually, All the time. I, it was, a, it was a, like last week, I sat down <laughs> to start the show, and the guy next to me was like, hey, what's going on? And I was like... <laughs> Hey. <laughs> and then he said, like right before the lights came down, he was like, I have Tourette's. <laughs> oh and I was like, what? <laughs> I'm like, we'll do this sh Okay. Don't touch me. That's, <laughs> that's hilarious. It's actually funny because um, often, especially at the Atlantic, once towards the end of our run, when, uh, when people got really comfortable with the material and started returning time after time, they would generally sit on the stage and bring their friends. Yes. And you would literally, they would reach over us to like tap their friends yeah. and say, you have to see, see what I'm talking about, man. Yeah, yeah, man. Didn't I tell you? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. He could sing. <laughs> yeah. Or, or like, I remember this one time there was a guy who wore a shirt that said, I'm 
with Farvis. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what? Was that what the shirt I'm said? With Farvis. I'm with <clears throat> Farvis, and there was an arrow pointing. The chair, there was like one chair on the end of the stage, right side. And I knew all of the show. <laughs> I knew that. I knew or, the whole no, show that I was going to have to go and sit in that chair. sitting in that chair first, and then she, the whole time, like, we're watching this guy. Like, I'm with Farvis shirt with an arrow pointing, and then she sits down in the chair, and it's like. And now we call Phoebe Farvis. Farvis <laughs> <laughs> Newmeyer. Like, the random things like that would happen. And you know, it was always so funny. So, how soon after the Atlantic run did you guys hear that the show was going to transfer to Broadway? That it was we going, we just had no idea where or when. Yeah. So, yeah. the essential information, we had no idea. Yeah. They told us, but, you're going to Broadway, <laughs> yeah. but we have no idea when. Yeah. And we don't know where. No. And then, um, and then, like, probably three weeks after that, two weeks after that, they were like, we so have Because then they, they found out that Sweeney was closing. Yeah, we found out Sweeney was closing, and then like a week after that, they got the official notice yeah. that, that we were going to need Gina Neal. It was all very exciting. Yeah. <laughs> we had to get into, like, they were like, you're going to Broadway, but wait, you guys have to get into hair and my, it was literally like <laughs> yeah. 7.30. Yeah, it was like right like, before our show. Right that, before our show. Yeah. That we were yeah. That like, show was rocking. Oh, that show <laughs> was awesome. They were like, they came after the, after the first act, they were like, Jesus, you guys are like really giving it. <laughs> yeah. We're like, yeah, because we're kind of excited. Yeah. We're kind of yeah. I, we, we like weren't allowed to go. I like snuck in a call to my mom. I had to yeah, like, give her a call. I did too. I was like screaming on the phone. I was like, mom, I gotta tell you something. But like, I have like two seconds. We're going to Broadway. <laughs> yeah, I'll call you. Gotta go. Yeah. yeah, but like, I, I have to like curl my hair. Yeah. Right, so <laughs> later, love you. Really One thing I liked about the show is I think not only do you all have great voices, but I personally like the fact that everybody's voices don't sound like. Right pretty much everybody on Broadway has sounded for mm -hmm. the past 10 years. Yeah. And I'm wondering, have all of you studied voice as well? I think most of us yeah. have. I know probably everyone here has. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Taking voice lessons. Well, it, it, yeah, I mean, Duncan really like goes for that raw sound. He, he loves it. Um, and, and we love to do it, but it, you know, we also need to have like stamina. We got to do eight shows a week. So I mean, sometimes the train, like some, some form of training really <laughs> kicks in here when you have the schedule that we have. Yeah. Two on Saturday, two on Sunday, one on Monday. It's like it's we nice gotta... to think of us, you know. Like they always say, you know, you're like rock stars in your garage, and like mm -hmm. that's cool and all, but like you can't, yeah. you really can't man maintain that sound unless you're warm and, and yeah. your voice, yeah. and you know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you're gonna blow yeah. a chord out. We do these yeah. like classical warm ups and <coughs> sing like garage rock. <laughs> well, I think you know that's that's like the reason why we're all able to stay healthy, you know, healthy, healthy as yeah. we are. Uh, all of your characters, you. During the acting scenes and stuff, you're it's pretty much straight up out of you know 1891, and right. you know, and then the songs switch over. Was that an all an odd concept to grab from an acting standpoint? The way that Michael had like described it to us from day one is just that they're supposed to be two separate things. You're supposed to be the character in 1891 during all the dialogue, and when the music starts, you're basically you become yourself rocking out in your room, mm. what you would do alone, you know, with a hairbrush. Mm. Who, who he said, was it? you can be, you, you can be, be anyone you want. You could be Damien Rice, you could be <laughs> Judy at the Palace. <laughs> it was really funny. I and then I remember, the I remember on like one of the pieces of sheet music that I got, I think it was the My Jack sheet music that I got for like the workshop, <clears> on the top of it, it was like, Idols. Oh yeah, Gwen Stefani. Semicolon. Gwen Stefani. <laughs> Britney Spears. And then I was like, what is this? I remember asking Kim, going, what? Kim Grigsby, our musical director, going, what, like Duncan what is this? <laughs> and she was like, she was like, oh, I think this was written a long time ago, back when, you know, when we did the workshop, them saying, you know, idols you could emulate. And I was like, oh, that's funny. Britney Spears, really? 
Yeah. Be half naked, shaking my tummy around. Yeah. 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 Cool we don't have to make anything up because we're just being ourselves. So exactly. I think that's a great part about it. There's no, there's nothing fake about yeah. it. It's yeah. really that's nice. What makes the performances so great. And then it also kind of makes it like it's the 21st century version of your yeah. characters, which is, yeah. which is what Michael told us <clears> is like kind of the concept from the get go is yeah. that once we pull out these microphones and start singing this contemporary alternative rock music, yeah. we become, um, you know, these, these like 20, 21st century versions of our of our 19th century characters. <laughs> we got a couple of geeky questions here for right. the contest or for the ticket giveaway. And the first one is, Phoebe, where were you when you got the call that you were cast? I was teaching ballet to little girls in pink tutus. <laughs> <laughs> and geeky question number two, which is only available on broadwayworld.com. Lauren, where are you originally from? So have you had any of your friends come down to see the show yet? Yeah, yeah a bunch of them have come. What's the feedback you've gotten from your friends? And they're always so crazy about it, which is so awesome that it speaks to our generation as yeah. well as you know the older generations and really everyone. They say stuff like it's the rent of the new generation, or but you know it's totally different than rent. I think you know we would love to have their success, but they definitely do things musically that we just have like a completely different concept. But it's mm -hmm. it's it's still revolutionary for our time. I think. Well, the great thing is just like I think I mean they. They're gearing it towards the younger generation, but I think everyone understands what's going on on the mm -hmm. stage because at some point in everyone's life, they've gone through mm -hmm. this time of, of, of finding yourself the you know the adolescent years of, of noticing the opposite sex and everything well, and, and, and going sex. through that whole or the same sex as well. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Just like, I just think that you know, like <laughs> <laughs> Anna, who is a flaming bull-like lesbian in the show, Which isn't it's not flushed out. <laughs> the character's not flushed out. <laughs> 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 I think, and you know, I I haven't had many friends come to the show because I'm still making friends in New York City because I'm New York. But everyone Lauren that no I know, friends. I have no. All of no my friends are in screen. We hate her. There's a geeky um, question. No one. So, <laughs> so, yeah. So I think, but I think Brian's right. Everyone can re can relate to the show. And I saw something. There was a little <laughs> ad on, I think Broadway.com the other day, hmm. that said something like. Spring Awakening for everyone who's been 16 once yeah. and yeah. I think didn't that know where to turn and didn't know where to turn like next that, yeah. you know I think that everyone can relate to that because everybody's been 16 mm -hmm. and <laughs> even the older crowd that comes the more experienced you know they can understand because it kind of brings them back into that everyone seems to really relate hmm? either to the, some people more to the music than the story and the, and it just brings a whole new crowd because there's the, a lot of people that come to our show to check it out that aren't the normal musical theater mm -hmm. goers oh, yeah. You know, these people are coming to see the rock music, and, and that's what I play. love about it. It's a, it's a rock show with, yeah. uh, with a story. Or I think it's interesting, like, the Duncan Cheek fans that come to see yeah. the show, you know, who are like, oh, what is Duncan doing? <laughs> and then they come and they're like, it's really great. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they're always yeah. really surprised, and I think that's really cool. Yeah, yeah. one thing that um, a lot of my friends have said, or at least my friends that, like, aren't necessarily into theater, more specifically musical theater. They mm -hmm. don't understand why people break out right. into song. Right. Even my friends who are actors, <clears throat> who are like straight acting, no musical yeah. theater, they're like, have literally said, I hate musicals, but this was yeah. awesome. Yeah. You know, and that's like the best feeling. Because mm -hmm. I'm literally like, <clears throat> you know, I went to school with these kids and yep. like hearing how they used to respond to like, you know, kind of other stuff. Yeah, it was cool. You're good, but like, I don't get it. Yeah. But like, yes, they just, <laughs> yeah, exactly. they just get they it. And they yeah. love it. Yeah. You know, and, and they get so many things. They get this great story, this great play, 
and like a rock concert in one night. Yeah. It's, it's pretty special. Well, now I know the the kids in the show actually all range in age from about fifteen to who's the oldest one playing? Phoebe. Phoebe, right here, and and who's the youngest in this group here? Me, Lauren, and you are. I'm eighteen. So in this young group making their Broadway debut in New York City, who are the ones who are like taking care of themselves and going home at night, and who's going out and partying like a rock star? We all Every are. one of us takes really good care of ourselves. <laughs> I know that's not, I think yeah. people, because like we're so young, they expect us to like go out to these like raves every night. And, yeah. Like seriously, we go home and go to bed because like yeah. we have a very long day in the morning. We have like yeah. five hours, especially now with previews, and then and, three hours yeah. in a show every night. Like we cannot afford to be out and we just can't yeah, do it. That yeah. was so funny. Uh, we were at a talk <laughs> back at NYU the other day and um, Michael was quite literally talking about how at the Atlantic we used to take naps together so he used the term they sleep together you know? so he's like I've literally been going upstairs to the because we had a big communal dressing room we went to the dressing room and they were sleeping together and everyone's like oh yeah sleeping together party and we're like no we were quite literally napping <laughs> we were exhausted we were literally sleeping together because there was one small air mattress that everyone had to yeah. it's funny how people want to air mattress that. and a futon Sorry for yeah. sellouts, guys. We're, we're, we're tired. Yeah, after we are shows. tired. It's, it's great. I mean, I think like we all have, we all have like our opening wow. night. Yeah. We'll throw a big celebration and it's we get the crazy. day off after that. So oh, you know, we'll have a good time. But we all, I mean, like but everyone like, in a dressing room has like their throat coat tea and their yes. honey and their yeah. like nasal oh, yeah. spray. Humidifier. Yeah, yeah we totally. got a nice. We're very good we'll about it. Take care of ourselves because this means too much to us. This show. True. Well, I thank you for taking time out of your hectic schedule, getting ready to open <laughs> and coming down talking to our listeners at Broadway Bullet. Of course. Definitely wish you the best of luck with Thank the you. run of the show, and I hope all our listeners get down to see you guys. Dirty Rotten Scoundrels closed on Broadway fairly recently, and I think it went way too soon. I just absolutely love the show. But the good news is, for a lot of people out there, the show is on tour. We're playing a song from Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, and since we played a song of Sherry Renee Scott's earlier, we'll play one of her numbers from the show. This is Here I Am from the Dirty Rotten Scoundrels soundtrack, available at Chickaboom Records. Would you look at that coffered ceiling? Look at that chandelier. Excuse me, but how I'm feeling is a hundred proof I could raise the roof. I'm so happy to be here. I've been kind of missing mom and daddy. Sort of in a spin since Cincinnati. The morning flight, a major bore, but then they open the cabin door and suit to lore. Here I am. Lord knows I had the will and the resources. But mom and dad kept saying, hold your horses. I guess those ponies couldn't wait. Pardon me, folks, but they've left the gate. I may be late, but here I am. Oh, the way to be, to me, is French. The way they say la vie is French. So here I am, Beaumont Samara, a big two weeks on the Riviera. If I'm only dreaming, please don't wake me. Let the summer sun and breezes take me. Excuse me if I seem jujun, I promise I'll find my marble soon. But everywhere I look, it's like a scene from a book. Open the book and here I am. Oops, sorry. Do, 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 do. 
eggs are French, the pies are French, those guys are French, these fries are French. Pardon me if I fly off the handle. No place else on earth can hold that candle. So Benny VDVC folks, let's face it, juice we see, see folks. Excuse me if I spout. I'm letting my shoes out. I'm sorry to shout, but here. Dirty Rotten Scoundrels is on tour. Here's a few of their upcoming performances. On December 5th through the 10th, they'll be in Miami, Florida. And the 12th through the 17th, they'll be in Fort Myers, Florida. Then they take a little break, and in January 16th through the 21st, they'll be in Appleton, Wisconsin. 123 through 128 in Pittsburgh, and 130 through February 4th, they'll be in Raleigh, North Carolina. They've got many more dates scheduled ahead of that, so if I didn't mention your city, you can go to broadwayworld.com to find that information. We also have a direct link to that page in the show notes for Broadway Bullet, Volume 17, at broadwaybullet.com. We're going to have a lot of great stuff for you next week. I'm going to be talking with the legendary vocal performance coach, Kristen Linklater. For those of you who aren't familiar with her, she uh, has written pretty much the Bible when it comes to theater speech on stage, freeing the natural voice. Got a great discussion with her on the use of mics in the theater nowadays and much more. And she also gives me a voice coaching lesson. We're going to be talking with some of the people involved with the musical Alter Boys, which is just recently headed out on tour, as well as being off-Broadway in New York City. And we're going to continue our Going Geeky on Spring Awakening coverage, talking to the director of the show, Michael Mayer, as well as the musical director, Kimberly Grigsby. And in another two episodes, starting with Volume 19, we're going to be talking with a couple people involved with the new musical High Fidelity and hearing some of those songs as well. So thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, Michael Gilbo. And until next week, thanks for hopping on board Broadway Bullet. So, a little more about our brand new theater and business arts major. I know what most theater programs are like, and I've talked to thousands of artists. All of this told me that a new style of theater major was needed. Theater majors can get a pretty good arts education just about anywhere, but most programs do very little to prepare actors, directors, playwrights, technicians, producers, etc. to manage their careers. When you go into the arts, you are your own business, and you need to manage that to strategically plan for your career to grow. If you've listened to many of these interviews, you know you need to be self-starters to create your own opportunities. I'm going to make sure you are ready for that world. You'll get a ton of opportunities as an undergraduate. Actors will act, even as freshmen. Designers will design shows right away. Playwrights will see their shows mounted. Directors will direct. Producers will handle shows from inception to execution. Outstanding guest artists will conduct workshops, and outstanding students will even work on this podcast and travel to New York with me for interview weeks. And if that isn't enough, we've got an amazing program that will pay all or part of your student loan payments, even private loans, if you are earning less than $40,000 six months after graduation. That is an invaluable option that lets you pursue your passion in theater with less financial pressure. If interested, 
and I hope you are, go to broadwaybullet.com. I'd love to help you launch your career.